This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, all made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride purpose they stitch people together if all that sounds good to you visit american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use code staple 20 at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com with promo code staple 20 this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here. I am so happy to have as my guest today, Charles Fountain. He is a former journalist, broadcaster, and currently a professor at Northeastern's School of Journalism. He is also the author of several books, and the one he's here to chat about today is called The Betrayal the 1919 World Series, and the birth of modern baseball. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for the invitation and the chance. Absolutely. So, how did you decide to write a book about the Black Sox scandal? It was actually my editor's idea, Tim Bent at Oxford University Press. We were talking about what my next book would be, and... Uh, it was going to be something on sports history and something on baseball history and something from, um, you know, that era. And he said, how about the Black Sox scandal? He said, I don't know a whole lot about that. I know that uh, there's been something written about it. Is there something left to say about it? And I went back and I reread some of the books that uh, had been written about it. And got back to him and said, yeah, I think there is. I think there's actually quite a bit to say, that there's some confusion and conflict in the books that are out there. There are some books that are very well written that are historically suspect. Uh, there are some books that are historically fastidious that are not the easiest read. So I think there's uh, at the very least a middle ground. And if we don't find the key to the great mystery there is still the uh, explanation of why we have not found that uh, key to the great mystery of what really happened. Uh, that makes it a fascinating story. So um, that was how it started. And, you know, I think that uh, that we were both right. He was right in that it was a good idea. There was a story there. And I was right in that there was still something to say. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of this, just for people who are who are listening, who might not be familiar with the scandal, or even baseball in general, would you mind setting the scene for us? Could you tell us about Chicago in 1919, and specifically the Chicago White Sox? Okay. Yeah, the, the, fun, the foundations of this story are that in the summer, early fall of 1919, 
eight players of the Chicago White Sox who were the runaway winners of the American League pennant, heavy favorites to defeat the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series. Eight players were approached by a couple of different groups of gamblers, all offering them the opportunity to uh, make a lot of money, somewhere between five and $20,000 per player, which was somewhere between two and, in some cases, ten times their annual salary for playing baseball. And uh, the players agreed to do it. Seven of the players agreed to do it. Uh, the eighth, Buck Weaver, the third baseman, was aware of the plan, but uh, steadfastly refused to be involved, did not take any money, did not do anything to lose the series. The White Sox did lose the series. We know that. They lost to the Cincinnati Reds five games to three. That the seven players that were under suspicion that had been in collusion with the gamblers uh, said later that they tried to double-cross the gamblers because the gamblers had double-crossed them by not paying them the promised money. The gamblers did give them some money, but not a lot, certainly less than what had been promised. And the players admitted or insisted that they had played their best in that World Series and that they just lost to the Cincinnati uh, Reds who played in a point that's lost to history. Cincinnati played very, very well in that series. The rumors that there was something amiss in this series were persistent throughout, but those were not uncommon. Rumors that the baseball game was fixed were not at all uncommon in that day because baseball had been fighting a gambling problem for the better part of really 50 years. For as long as there had been organized baseball, there had been gambling associated with organized baseball. It had been shunted into the shadows since the 1870s, but since the advent of what we know as organized baseball, the merger of the National and American Leagues in 1903, there had been a number of little brush fires about fixed games. And there had been a number of rumors. Baseball didn't want to do anything to chase these rumors down. Rumors of impropriety were not good for business. That's a fact. But rooting out those rumors and proving them to be true would have been much, much worse for history than the rumors were. So the owners at that time, um, the individual team owners and collectively the National Commission, while talking uh, a big talk about rooting out gamblers and trying to keep the game clean, really stuck their head in the sand and ignored the very real evidence that they occasionally had that a player was crooked or a game had been fixed. So within this environment, the gamblers and the ballplayers had their conversation in the fall of 1919, the White Sox lost the World Series, and the rumors would not go away. The rumors sort of kicked around for the better part of the year, and then a whole sequence of unrelated events in the late summer of 1920 sort of combined to bring the whole story out in the open. The first of these was a phone call that Bill Veck, the president of the Chicago Cubs, the father of the Bill Veck who would own the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago White Sox in the 50s and 60s, and a man that a lot of your listeners would be familiar with. Uh, His father, William Beck Sr., was the president of the Chicago Cubs. He received a call on a weekday afternoon uh, that warned him to watch that afternoon's game, that there was a lot of betting activity on it, and there was a rumor that the Cubs pitcher was going to uh, lose the game deliberately. Beck pulled the pitcher. He then went to the sports writers, and he said, would you guys look into this? The baseball writers of America said, well, why should we be looking into this? This is a criminal matter. Let the Cooks County grand jury look into this. So the grand jury looked into the rumors that that Cubs-Phillies game, you know, a meaningless midweek game between two second division teams, they looked into the rumors that that Cubs-Phillies game had been fixed. While they were doing that, or as soon as they agreed to do that, the writers started asking, well, why don't they look into those rumors about 1919? Why don't we get to the bottom of this? 
So they, the grand jury started looking into the rumors of 1919. They weren't getting very far that most of the witnesses that they had called early in the testimony had only rumor and hearsay to offer the same rumors and hearsay that had been hinted at in newspapers over the past year. But one of the people that was following this from afar was one of the failed fixers. It was a boxer by the name of Billy Maharg. He had been in partnership with an ex-major league pitcher by the name of Bill Burns, and they had had conversations with the players the autumn before, and both of them had lost all their money when they misunderstood that the players were... uh going to uh, lose game three. They bet all their money on the Reds on game three and lost it when the White Sox won. Billy Park was a little bit bitter, and he uh, was a little bit frustrated that uh, nothing was coming out in the grand jury testimony. So he went to a Philadelphia newspaper writer, a guy by the name of Jimmy Isamager, who was a uh, Hall of Fame baseball writer. He's in the writer's wing of the Hall of Fame, as are a number of the writers that covered this story. And uh, the Philadelphia North American published a story that, for the first time, included the words of somebody who was actually in the room with the player. In other words, it was first-person testimony, and it was now on the record. With that story, the whole thing started to unravel. The next day, uh, Charles Comiskey and Alfred Austrian, his attorney, brought First, Eddie Seacott, who had been the starting pitcher in games one, four, and uh, seven, and then Joe Jackson to the first Austrian's office, and then to the grand jury where they confessed to their part in the whole story, which led to the indictments and ultimately to their being suspended from the game and to the criminal trial a year later. Would you mind going through the players connected to the scandal? Uh, Maybe just a little bit about each one and how involved each of them were in it. There were different levels of culpability, right? Absolutely. There were eight players that were banned from the game. That in all that was later said and written about that, the only thing that everyone could agree on on this story was that Chick Gandil, the White Sox first baseman, was at the center of it. It was Chick Gandil that recruited the seven players, the seven other players. It was Chick Gandil to whom the money was paid, and Gandil then dispersed it. Chick Gandil was a rough-hewn player that he had grown up an orphan. He had left, uh, you know, a foster home at 15 made his living in uh, the hard scrabble baseball world of the southwest and was familiar with the sort of underworld element that hung around the game so he would have had the familiarity with people who could have put something like this over so chick Gandil put the whole thing together the other players were Eddie Seacott, and he was the key to the whole thing. He was a pitcher that had gone 35-8, and eight, I believe, was his record in 1919. He had uh, an earned run average of something like it was under two. He had a phenomenal 1919. That the fix would not have been possible without Eddie Seacott, And the very fact that Eddie Seacott was involved convinced the other players who were being recruited into this that it was plausible that if Seacott was aboard, Seacott could single-handedly perhaps throw this series. He was a guy who uh, was conflicted in all of this. He was very heavily involved in the early stages. He pitched very well after he suspected that the players were being double-crossed later in the series. He was worried. He was 35 years old. He was worried that he had a mortgage on a farm in Michigan, that his baseball career was coming to an end. And he was the first one to confess because he wore the burden of his guilt very, very heavily during that 1920 season. He became sort of withdrawn from the rest of the players. And in many ways, Eddie Seacott is the most fascinating ball player in this whole series. The other pitcher that was involved 
was Lefty Williams, who was the second best pitcher on the White Sox that uh, year. Lefty Williams was uh, 23 years old. He was at the start of what looked like to, it would be a promising career, and he was uh, he was the golden ticket for the gamblers who were betting against the White Sox because Williams lost three games in that series. He would later insist that aside from the first game, he was doing his best. And when you really look at the uh, performance of Lefty Williams in that series, you say that somebody got inside his head at the very least, that uh, if you looked at Lefty Williams' pitching in that series, uh, the word crooked might not have come to mind, but the word choked might have come to mind, that he was certainly not at his best in critical moments. That the other players involved were friends of Chick Gandil's, that the shortstop Swede Risberg, 25 years old, was uh, very close to Gandil, hung with Gandil as did Fred McMullen, the uh, utility player that was involved in this, that McMullen didn't figure to see much action. He wouldn't have been somebody that would have been recruited for this, but he was a friend of Gandil, so he was included in the fix. Happy Felsch, who was the center fielder on the team, was a get-along-to-go-along kind of guy. And when Candiel reached out to Felsch at first, he said, well, I'm not uh, sure. Kami, Charles Comiskey's always treated me well. But then he said that if this was going to happen, he may as well get his money just along as well as the next guy. So he agreed uh, to be involved. Buck Weaver was the third baseman. He listened to the proposal and flatly refused. He went to a meeting in which the uh, fix was discussed, but excused himself and did not accept any money and did not do anything to lose the series. And then the last player is the guy that has kept this whole story alive for a 100 years. It's Joe Jackson, the White Sox left fielder, not only the best player on the White Sox, but quite uh, probably the best player in baseball in 1919, that it was between Joe Jackson and Ty Cobb, but Ty Cobb was nearing the end of his career and Joe Jackson was still very much in the prime of his, that Jackson was illiterate. Jackson was the, you know, together with Eddie Seacott, the sort of uh, critical player. Well, if Joe Jackson would not play his best, then you could believe that a fix like this could happen. But more importantly, Joe Jackson is the guy around who this incredible story of the Black Sox scandal has evolved since the, the series, that it started with a story that may or may not have been true. It was written by a newspaper writer by the name of Hugh Fullerton on the day of the confessions and indictments in September of 1920. As Hugh Fullerton told the story, Joe Jackson was leaving the criminal courts building on West Hubbard Street in Chicago when one little urchin, a small child, poked his head out of the crowd that was there and said to Joe Jackson, it ain't true, is it, Joe? And Jackson said, yes, son, I'm afraid it is. And the child said, well, I never would have thought it. And it ain't true, is it, Joe, as it was reported by other newspapers, became say it ain't so, Joe. And say it ain't so, Joe, is the sort of uh, eternal cry of this, the plaintive cry of an America that felt betrayed by this and wanted their hero to deny it, wanted to say and reinforce the uh, belief that all fans had in the innocence and purity of the game. And so that little that little vignette encapsulates the entire story, that it's you know, it's a Shakespearean drama in three sentences. It's got the hurt and the betrayal of the American baseball fan. It's got the hero stripped of his aura and his dignity. And it's got the mystery and the, you know, perplexion of the whole thing. Why? How could this have happened? And we're still sort of 
feeling the same way about that. Huh? What a sad figure is Joe Jackson and uh, these other players that were stripped bare of their you know, dignity and legacy in this. How could they have done it? Why did they do it? It's all sort of there, and it's, it's really where the Black Sox story is today, 100 years later. I think it's been a couple of years I did an episode about Arnold Rothstein and maybe maybe a little bit less than two years and, and about his life and death. We didn't get too far into his connection to the Black Sox scandal, but I want to ask you about him. There are a number of theories about him and others involved in this. What do we know about it? Do you have a hypothesis about who was behind all of this and how it actually went down? I think that there were probably a number of conversations. That's actually a chapter title of the book was the conversations and the conversations that happened during that uh, 1919 season that we have a record of that the players either confess to in their confessions before the grand jury or to a newspaper person at a later date or in the criminal trial of 1921 or in the civil trial of 1924 brought by Joe Jackson against Charles Comiskey to uh, collect back salaries, um, that out of all that testimony, we we know that there were conversations that were held throughout the season. All of the conversations involving gamblers involved gamblers with a connection to Arnold Rothstein. And all of those players had no connection to one another except through Arnold Rothstein. All of those gamblers that talked with the players did not have the financial resources to put over a fix of this sort or even to make those promises that um, they were they were second string operators and they might be able to put their hands on a couple of thousand dollars to fix a midweek game uh, during the regular season, but they couldn't put their hands on the kind of money that they were promising the players to pull off something like that. The only person that was involved in this that had those kinds of resources were Arnold Rothstein that he obviously was uh, an obscenely wealthy individual that he carried during the height of his influence and working life in the 1920s in New York. He would walk around New York with $100,000 in cash on him. Our best estimate as to what it cost to fix the World Series is somewhere between fifty dollars and $80,000. If we add up the money that the players admit to getting and then add up the money that they suspect Chick and Deal double cross them out of. We're somewhere between fifty and eighty thousand dollars. And uh, you know, if you carry around a hundred thousand dollars, what that means is that Arnold Rothstein fixed the nineteen nineteen World Series, brought about the greatest scandal in the history of American sports with what he had on him. It's uh, an absolutely remarkable fact. And, you know, there is no other plausible explanation as to where this money came from and who was behind it. And Arnold Rothstein went to such great lengths in uh, 1920 and 1921 when this whole thing fell apart uh, to not get indicted, to not be a part of this whole thing, that it's the only plausible explanation is that he was uh, in and up to his ears and he wanted to uh, do whatever he can to preempt indictment because he didn't uh, want everyone at a criminal trial pointing the finger at him. How did the the payouts to the players work? Uh, Some of them admitted to receiving cash. Others like Chick Gandil, like, like you've said, not sure exactly how much, but what was the, the total how was it distributed, and at what point in the World Series did they get paid? We know Eddie Seacott got $10,000 before the series started because he said he would not participate unless he got $10,000 and unless he was paid before the series began. So when he got to get back to his hotel room after a meeting five days, four or five days before the series began, 
he found an envelope under his pillow which had $10,000 in cash in it. So we know Eddie Seacott got $10,000. We know he got that money before the series. The only plausible explanation was that it came from Gandil. It came through Gandil from two individuals by the name of Nat Evans and Sport Sullivan who were Arnold Rothstein factotums. Joe Jackson got $5,000. Lefty Williams got $5,000. That money came from Chick Gandil after game three or four of the series. Happy Felsch admitted to a newspaper writer that he got $5,000. Uh, he did not make that ambition until after the indictments uh, were handed down a year later, and he did not say when he got that money. The private investigators that worked for Charles Comiskey and Alfred Austrian when they were investigating Swede Risberg got Swede Risberg's mistress to sort of hint at uh, the fact that he might have got $10,000. That, that's the only suggestion of any sort as to how much money uh, Risberg might have gotten. It may be reliable information. It may not be, uh, you know, reliable at all. We do know that the mistress got a nail salon or something from uh, Risberg during this whole time frame. That's how much we know, that it's reasonable to expect that if Felsch, Jackson, Lefty Williams all got $5,000, Eddie Seacott got $10,000, Risberg may or may not have gotten uh, $10,000, probably reasonable to guess that Fred McMullen might have gotten $5,000 as well. And however much money the gamblers had given to Chick Gandil, that's how much Chick Gandil got. Uh, and that's what we don't know. Was it, you know, an extra ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, or was it as much as fifty or sixty thousand dollars as some of the players suspected? They had been promised more than that, though, right? Yes, that at various times they were promised twenty thousand dollars per man which would have been $160,000 in uh, money. They were promised $5,000 or $10,000 at various points in the conversation by different people that it's, you know, impossible to know what they thought they were being promised and uh, what they thought they were owed. But uh, the money was a long time coming, at least it was to the players that would later talk about it who were uh, Seacott, Jackson, and uh, Williams. Jackson was inquiring about the money after game one, after game two. He kept asking Gandil, where's the money, where's the money, when are we going to see the money? Uh, so the players were restless in the early days of the series about when they were going to get the money. So there was a grand jury. You've talked a little bit about how that came about. How did the, the dominoes fall? Who was the first to be brought in, and how did he cave? On the morning after that Philadelphia North American article appeared, with Billy Maharg saying that he had been in the room with the players and that they had agreed to throw the series in return for money, Charles Comiskey, owner of the White Sox, Kid Gleason, the White Sox manager, Harry Grabner, who was Charles Comiskey's right-hand man, today he would have been the president and chief operating officer of the club, and Alfred Austrian all met in Alfred Austrian's office to strategize as to what they were going to do right now, because it was clear for the better part of a year they had actively engaged in a cover-up in order to protect Charles Comiskey's team and his business. Now it was clear that they were not going to be able to protect the team and these players, and they had to find a way of making sure that they weren't swept up, specifically Charles Comiskey was not swept up in this whole scandal and losing, um, you know, finding himself losing his business as uh, a result of it. So they all met with, uh, you know, the idea of how do, how do we look as though we are leading the posse on this investigation right here? And the conversation asked, and Alfred Austrian said he forgot who uh, it was that answered the question, but Alfred Austrian asked the question, who among these guys is 
most likely to confess? And the answer came back, and it had to have come from Kid Gleason because he was closest to all these players. The answer came back, Seacott, that Eddie Seacott had been the guy that summer who was uh, sullen and morose, who had withdrawn from his teammates. He was still pitching very effectively, had a very good season in 1920, uh, but he was a different person. And there were rumors that he had spent a lot of time that summer talking to his priest. And Gleason, who was very close to his players, he was the White Sox manager for only one year. But he was, um, 1919 was his first year, 1920 his second. But he had been a coach in the White Sox for six years before that. And he was very close to the players. And he could see that there was something burdening Seacott. And he knew what it was that was burdening him. So he said Seacott was the one. And they brought Seacott in. They promised him immunity. It's not you that we're after. It's the gamblers. We only want you as a witness. We have no intention of prosecuting you at all. And Seacott agreed to tell what he knew. The first thing they then put in front of him that morning was an immunity waiver, which said that uh, I am making these statements of my own free will and do so knowing that anything might be used against me in a criminal proceeding. So clearly, Eddie Seacott was hearing what he wanted to hear on the matter of uh, not uh, being prosecuted in all of this. And Seacott told what he knew, that he had been involved in conversations through the summer, that the players talked among themselves that they had meetings with uh, these gamblers in uh, different places. They had this critical meeting in a Chicago hotel just before the regular season ended and series began where the whole fix finally came together, and he got $10,000 on that night. That was the essence of his confession. As Seacott went out to the grand jury, Joe Jackson showed up in the afternoon. That Seacott was there at about 10 in the morning. Joe Jackson arrived at Austrian's office at about noontime, and it went through the same thing. That Austrian said, we've got the goods on you. You're going to be indicted. You're going to be suspended from baseball. That we don't want to prosecute you. We just want to get the gamblers here. So you may as well tell us everything you know. Joe Jackson at this point, Joe Jackson now the illiterate bumpkin, the guy that, uh, you know, everyone felt was overmatched uh, in amongst the, uh, you know, lawyers and everybody in this room. Joe Jackson asked for a lawyer and uh, Alfred Austrian said, uh, you don't need a lawyer. We can do you more good than any lawyer can. And Jackson said, well, I'd, I'd still like a lawyer. And uh, Austrian convinced him, no, we don't want to prosecute you. Just go along with us and things will go very well for you. Uh, so Jackson then confessed. Uh, Jackson went over to the grand jury. And as he left the grand jury came the it ain't true, is it Joe moment on the courthouse steps. And then Lefty Williams was the third one brought down to Alfred Austrian's office. That was the next morning. And he, too, confessed to his part in the fix, first in Austrian's office and then in the grand jury room on in the criminal courts building. The other confession that day came from Happy Felsch, the center fielder, and he confessed not to the grand jury, but to a newspaper man, uh, a news reporter, not a sports reporter, but a news reporter, uh, sort of a legendary Chicago a uh, newsman by the name of uh, Harry Rootlinger. And, you know, this is a marvelous story, too. And it's impossible, as with all of these old legends, to confirm whether or not it actually happened. But Rootlinger had a, you know, marvelous history as a journalist of keeping telephone lines open to uh, Ireland when Wrongway Corrigan was headed there. So he would be the first to talk with him, getting an exclusive on the Dion Quintuplets by claiming to be a hospital offering an incubator, getting another story when he was on the phone claiming to be Franklin Roosevelt. And the way he got into this story was to uh, ask a colleague in the sports department, so which one of these guys, by, by now the names were all mentioned, he says, which one of these guys is the stupidest? And uh, Rutlinger went to talk with Happy Felsch, the center fielder, and uh, Felsch confessed to his part in the plan, his reluctance to go along, but eventually acquiescing because he said, well, it's going to happen. I may as well get uh, the money as not. 
and uh, expressing remorse, saying that I got my 5,000, but I would have gotten almost as much had we won the series, and expressing some real uh, regret on that. Those were the only players who ever admitted to their part. Chick Gandil, who was already out of baseball, denied vehemently his involvement in it. Buck Weaver denied vehemently his involvement in it. And Swede Risberg and Fred McMullen said nothing at all. Uh, nothing to reporters, nothing to lawyers, nothing to investigators of any kind. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. So the trial, you write, was, was pretty short, but spectacular, too, as far as being a sensational trial. These were major celebrities in Chicago in 1920, correct? And, and people were just overwhelmingly interested in this. Yeah, it was one of the trials of the century that, uh, you know, trials are favorites of uh, newspaper guys and today television guys because it's theater. It's their right there in front of you. You don't have to do any reporting. All you have to do is record what's said. And uh, the, you know, the drama and the conflict is all uh, right there in front of you. So criminal trials have always been uh, great copy for newspapers. And when the criminal trial involves somebody famous or involves a spectacular crime, and certainly eight major league ball players some attendant gamblers and the crime of fixing the World Series was an irresistible story. So it received enormous attention in every newspaper in the country. It was front page news for the run of the trial in every newspaper in the country. Add to it the twists and turns that the investigation had taken the uh, bombshell that the confessions the players had signed, the immunity waivers that the players had signed were missing. They had been stolen from the uh, state's attorney's office. And the speculation as to whether the copies of those confessions and immunity waivers would be admitted into evidence, all made for spectacular uh, theater, that it was pretty difficult trial for the average reader to have gotten his or her arms around because the players weren't charged with fixing baseball games. There was no law against fixing baseball games in 1919 or before. They were arraigned on a whole array of arcane charges that only a, you know, law school professor giving an exam could embrace. The most comprehensible of those charges was a conspiracy to injure the business of their employer. Now, 
that's something that uh, you know is a legal fine point that was lost on most of the people following the trial and lost on most of the jurors as well, particularly when the judge in the case charged the jurors by saying that you can believe or not believe whether or not these players tried to lose a baseball game. But in order to find them guilty, you must prove, you must decide that their intention in losing that game was to injure the business of their employer. And uh, not surprisingly, the players were quickly acquitted. Uh, the jury deliberated, I think, for about 40 minutes and acquitted the players on all uh, charges. They were, they, the players were taken from the courthouse on the shoulders of the people that were in the courtroom. It was about midnight when the verdict was finally uh, delivered. And they were taken from the uh, courthouse on the shoulders of the people that were there and uh, thinking that their long ordeal was over and that they would be back in uniform the next day or shortly thereafter. Uh, but the next day, Judge Landis, who had been brought in some months before and had followed the proceedings very quietly, issued what was his first major ruling as commissioner and historically the most significant he would ever make in the 24 years he spent at the helm of Major League Baseball when he issued a decree that said, regardless of the verdicts of juries, no ball player who conspires to throw a baseball game or sits in conference with other ball players where the ways and means of throwing games are discussed and does not immediately report it to his employer will never play baseball again. So the seven players that admitted to their part in the fix and Buck Weaver, who insisted he had no part but did have the guilty knowledge that others were in on a fix, uh, were all suspended uh, that day. And uh, that was the end of the story insofar as their careers were concerned, that uh, they never played another game of uh, Major League Baseball. There was never any real question but that they would. The only one who tried to get back in the game was Buck Weaver, and he met with no success. And uh, it would seem that that would have been the end of the story. But as uh, we know now, because we're discussing it a century later, in a lot of ways, it was really just the beginning of the story. Who do you believe stole those immunity waivers? Again, all signs point to Arnold Rothstein and his attorney, William Fallon. William Fallon was the lawyer for the uh, New York underworld in the 1920s. He was a brilliant courtroom lawyer. He had uh, the, the mind of a Supreme Court justice and the courtroom presence of a born actor. He also had the ethics of a safecracker, that he was the consummate jury fixer, that he cheated the, uh, the jailer out of dozens of, uh, you know, bootleggers and gamblers and uh, bucket shop operators and uh, everyone he ever defended on a charge of murder was acquitted. Uh, and when he was brought up on charges of jury fixing, uh, you know, later in his career, he fixed that jury and beat that rap as well. Uh, he was Arnold Rothstein's attorney. And um, as far as we are able to follow the trail, Bill Fallon's partner went to Chicago and with $10,000 of Arnold Rothstein's money, gave that money to an associate in Chicago who then gave it to a deputy in the state's attorney's office. And it was then that the documents went missing, that we have no proof of that. And nobody was ever tried for that. No one would that crime. And so far as we know, was never investigated beyond what was, you know, pieced together by Fallon's partner talking to newspaper reporters. Do you think that affected the outcome of the trial? No. You know, I think that the outcome of the trial was foreordained. The The confessions and the immunity waivers were ultimately admitted into evidence because the, there were copies that existed. So the information, even though the original documents were missing, there were carbons of all that had been uh, said 
and those were admitted into evidence. So the information that was contained in those documents was uh, admitted at trial. But again, they were admitted under the, you know, the fine points of law that the judge ruled. They may be used only insofar as they implicate the person who made that confession. So in Eddie Seacott's case, the confession could be used to implicate Seacott, and it could be read into evidence. But the players that Seacott named in that deposition and later before the grand jury uh, could not be named. So when it was read into the trial transcript, it was I, Eddie Seacott, had a meeting at the hotel on the 27th of September. Present at that meeting were Mr. X, Mr. X, Mr. X, Mr. X, Mr. X, and Mr. X. And so everything that as these were read into the record by a representative of the um, state's attorney or representative of the grand jury, you know, they were read in in that redacted form. Um, so it was, you know, almost a comical moment in uh, the trial. So it had no bearing on the outcome. The outcome from a legal standpoint was almost foreordained. Was the rest of the team aware that a few of their teammates were trying to throw the World Series as it was happening? Yes, there's an awful lot of, you know, fractiousness and friction on that team. It was a team of cliques. One clique was headed by Ray Schalk, the Hall of Fame catcher, and Eddie Collins, the Hall of Fame second baseman. And, you know, the, the other players uh, in the starting lineup, Shane O'Collins, the, uh, the right fielder, and uh, Nemo Liebold, who was the other, you know, platoon right fielder, they all hung together. And uh, there was, particularly on the, in the case of Ray Schalk, some uh, sort of uh, confrontations and Schalk going to Gleason, uh, the manager, Kid Gleason, and saying, you know, these guys are crossing me up. These guys, meaning Seacott and Williams on pitch calls and things like that. There was a rumor which Schalk denied his entire life that he had confronted and fought Lefty Williams during the um, the series. That too has passed into Black Sox legend, despite Schalk's denials that anything like that happened. So the players heard the rumors as well. They heard the rumors just like the writers heard the rumors, just like the management of uh, the White Sox, just like the management of Major League Baseball heard all these rumors. And they would have been closer to the situation than anybody else. But it wasn't the kind of team where the players who were not involved would have felt comfortable talking to the players who were about what was going on. So how did all of this affect the team in the 1920 season? How how did they acclimate to the scandal? They were, they were still a very good baseball team in 1920. It was effectively the same team in 1920 uh, that had played in 1919. They were in a close pennant race all season long with the Cleveland Indians at the uh, moment that the whole thing fell apart in late September with about six games left in the season. They were, they were two games out, so they were still very much in the hunt that the players that had been involved that, you know, after the series was over, they all went their same way. The next time they saw one another was that next year. And insofar as we know, while they would hang together, you know, brought together by the bond of being involved in this, they didn't talk among themselves. They talked among themselves in 1919 an awful lot about this but they didn't talk among themselves in 1920 about what had happened. And it remained the same sort of team of cliques and loners that had um, it had been in 1919, uh, in 1920. And when the story broke, the remnants of the White Sox lost, I don't know uh, exactly, you know, they, they won one or two games, but uh, they, they lost while Cleveland was winning. And so they did not, uh, you know, challenge for the World Series. And then in 1921, they tumbled right into the second division. That the, the same team without those seven players, which was hailed in 1919 as maybe the best baseball team of all time, 
by 1921 without those players was a second division team. Were there any of these characters, these figures, as you were doing your research that, that you felt particularly bad for, that, that you thought might have been especially victimized? The guy that I would have loved to talk to, if I could have been, you know, the reporter long years after the fact who could have gotten a complete story from everybody, the guy I would have loved to have talked to was Eddie Seacott. That he is, I think, the most fascinating player in the whole story, that he was an introspective, intelligent guy. And, but I think what makes him an interesting figure and somebody that I would want to talk to is not only the guilt and the shame that he felt that led him to be the first one to confess, and like the series fix itself, if Seacott had held firm, if Seacott had a lawyer that told him to shut up, you're not saying anything to these guys, uh, the whole thing might never have happened. The whole unraveling might never have happened. So Seacott was the key to both the fix happening in the first place and to the whole thing coming apart. And he later in life never tried to make excuses, never tried to, you know, rationalize what he had done, that he declined for the most part to talk. He did give a long interview to Joe Falls of the Detroit Free Press in uh, the late 1950s. And he said that uh, I like to think that uh, I have lived my life with honor ever since that moment and that I've become a good father, a good grandfather, and now a good great-grandfather. And when Elliot Asinoff was writing Eight Men Out in the early 1960s, a handful of these players were still alive, and he reached out to all of them. Uh, he reached out to Eddie Seacott and said, you know, may I please talk to you? I think that you will like the treatment. I intend to write this book uh, the, in a way that casts the players in a sympathetic light. And Seacott wrote on the letter, on the letter that Asanoff sent to him, Seacott hand wrote across the top of the letter, I'm not interested. Thanks for remembering me, Ed Seacott. And that was his, you know, sole sort of response to that. So I think that in all of its elements, in both the detail, because Seacott was involved from an early hour, and in the introspection that he would be able to offer, I think Eddie Seacott would be the most fascinating guy to talk to. One of the figures that seems very sympathetic uh, was the manager, Kid Gleason. Yeah, that, um, you know, Kid Gleason was, he would be today known as the player's manager. In other words, he had a very warm sort of paternal relationship with these players. And as I said, even though he had been manager of the team only since 1919, the start of the 1919 uh, season, he had been a coach on the team since 1912. And so um, he knew these players intimately, that he was the guy who would be invited to their weddings and invited to the christenings of uh, their children and uh, was, you know, extremely close to them. And I think because of that, felt the hurt of the betrayal. And again, the guy that I think he may have, uh, you know, been stung by the most was, was Seacott, that he was certainly no naive individual. He knew that this game fixing was uh, not the first time that that had happened and that there were all sorts of these kinds of little incidents in, in baseball. He certainly would have been aware of that. But to have it happen with a group of guys that he had uh, enormous affection for and that he had led to the American League pennant, but it also, you know, led them through an awful lot of life's moments in the, you know, years that he had known them, that it's uh, easy to feel sympathy for Kid Gleason. And he was obviously untouched by this in a baseball sense. He could continue his baseball career. But he seemed to have lost interest in baseball after that, that he managed the White Sox for another year plus maybe, uh, got fired when they were mired in the second division, and just sort of uh, drifted away from baseball for a period of years until Connie Mack saw him in the mid-1920s and was 
sort of appalled at how broken Gleason had seemed and disinterested in life. And Mac persuaded him to come work for him with the Philadelphia Athletics. What happened to Shoeless Joe Jackson after all of this? Um, where did he go? What did he do? Shoeless Joe was uh, probably better positioned for life after baseball than any of the others that he had invested very wisely. He had married very well. He had married his Greenville, South Carolina sweetheart. He married her when he was 19 and she was 15, but uh, she proved to be a very shrewd uh, manager of Jackson's resources that um, he invested first in a uh, Savannah, Georgia dry cleaning business and valet service and then later in a liquor store in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, after he moved there, moved first to Savannah after his career was over, and about a decade later moved to Greenville, his hometown, and lived a very comfortable life the rest of his life, that he was, you know, newspapers tend to exaggerate, so newspapers reported he was a millionaire. Uh, he was not, but his businesses were very successful, and despite the fact that he was out of baseball and that abraded him because he continued to play baseball in mill leagues and semi-pro leagues and barnstorming uh, leagues for as long as he was physically able, he lived a fairly comfortable post-baseball life in, you know, mostly Greenville. And uh, the other piece of the Jackson story is how he came uh, to symbolize this, to symbolize the confusion of it, that it must be remembered that Joe Jackson was guilty of the crimes that got him suspended from baseball, that he knew that there were players that were conspiring to throw the World Series. He did accept $5,000 from Lefty Williams, so he was involved, and, you know, in the sense that those crimes uh, were the crimes that got him thrown out of baseball, he was guilty. He did not do anything to lose that series. You know, he committed no errors and batted 375. That that was, uh, you know, that's often cited in uh, his defense, that he never attended any of the meetings other than individual meetings with players in which this was discussed. Lefty Williams was his surrogate in all of this. There's an awful lot of uh, speculation as to whether or not he actually ever agreed to cooperate or whether he just stopped refusing to cooperate, um, that there's reason to be sympathetic about Joe Jackson. And he has become this sort of legendary literary figure, that he was the person that Bernard Malamude's hero in The Natural, Roy Hobbs, was modeled after. And clearly the most sentimental of the books was uh, W.P. Kinsella's Shoeless Joe, and then the two films that were made from those books, the Robert Redford film, The Natural, and the uh, Field of Dreams movie starring Kevin Costner from the novel Shoeless Joe. So he's become a recognized figure. He's got that eponymous name, Shoeless Joe Jackson, which is sort of so embodies that rural humble, uneducated individual. It's the perfect nickname for him. And he's this sort of mythic figure from that time now who has come out of the story and in a lot of ways keeps the story alive. If Joe Jackson were not a part of the story, I'm not sure we'd be talking about it right now. Right. <laughs> well, this has been great. And if people want to buy your book, it's still available online. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in bookstores still out there still available and uh you know um timely now that we're at the 100th anniversary oh right amazing yeah are there any festivities <laughs> planned that's perhaps a little bit more celebratory of a word than i should be using any commemorations this is an awkward moment for Major League Baseball and for the Chicago White Sox. I mean, it is a seminal part of baseball history and a pivotal moment in baseball history. And in a lot of ways, as the subtitle of the book suggests, the modern game came out of this scandal. But you can't really be giving away 1919 ball caps at the ballpark and celebrating uh 
Chick Gandil meeting with Sport Sullivan and the, uh, you know, uh, festivities on the ball field. So it's, uh, you're not, you're not going to see any salute to 1919 in the Black Sox now or at any time in the future. <laughs> well, well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for uh, the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Again, I've been speaking to Charles Fountain about his book, The Betrayal, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I watched recently the documentary on Netflix about World War II, recently colorized, highly recommended, it's amazing. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.